Hello, and welcome to Always Already Podcast. We're your hosts, Rachel, Emily, and John. And we're here today to talk about Amnesties by Politics, Racial Mattering, and Queer Affect by Mel Chen. And we're talking about two or three chapters in particular while we skim through the introduction. We read chapter two, Queer Animation, and we read chapter six, following Mercurial. Mercurial affect. Yeah, but good luck saying it correctly every time we have to yeah. say it. <laughs> Before we get on the chat, I have a couple things. I want to, you know, obviously I wasn't there for the last episode, so I have two, two, three things from listening to it. First of all, I never actually listened to the episodes after I do the editing, and now I'm like more nervous than usual because I realized, <laughs> like, I you know I never listened to it. Like, obviously it's in the moment and whatever, we're like intercorporeally like relating to one another. But like, I like the overwhelming intelligence of all of you like overwhelmed me through my oh. earphones on the subway. Are you so sure now it wasn't I'm more just the overwhelming volume of our voices? <laughs> no, because B was actually really, really quiet, which is usually not how he operates. So like, he has this like softest voice. Lucky for you, he's I... never gonna listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Um, so that was the first thing. And then the other thing that I was thinking about is that I can't believe you, especially Rachel. You really had to take B to task for uh, all the shit he talked about Merleau-Ponty on the Living Alterities episode, and then he explicitly walked back. So, backstory, always already podcast listeners, we did the podcast on Living Alterities, Race, Phenomenology, and Embodiment sometime last fall. We had a listener write in, Joe. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joe. Uh, who works on an organic vegetable farm and listens to us as he farms organic vegetables. So awesome. Nice. You're really cool, Joe. Uh, and, like, gave a nice solid critique to be uh, of screwing up phenomenology and embodiment in Merleau-Ponty and asked us to read the Merleau-Ponty. So Joe is the reason we y'all talked about him last week. And B, like, totally, like, slid under very quietly that, like, he was entirely wrong about everything he said about Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology a couple months ago. He made it, though. And you let him off the hook, though. You should have you should have gone after it a little bit more. A little um, harder? Well... Yeah. And the third thing is that... Oh, um, I don't actually remember what he said about Yeah, I don't remember either. In the Living Alterities one? Yeah. Well, that's because... Uh, you all were smart enough to not go back and listen to that episode very closely and like map out the oh in preparation for this one yeah uh-huh. it's true I did not do that so <laughs> I did and then B and I argued about Merleau Ponty like two months ago and then obviously I wasn't there last week so I'm retroactively holding B accountable okay. and saying that Rachel and I were right in that episode in his inanimacy yeah <laughs> <And> <laughs> I don't know what I was right about but I uh, we were right Just... here two four cosine um, and thirdly that like there is a lack Lack of corny jokes in the Merlo Ponty episode. Your okay, so do you know, we got really <laughs> serious. No, that's but there's, let me let me interject why there was a lack. So we had to do the introduction maybe seven or eight times because we kept cracking up. Um, like we'd literally be hi all and welcome. Like it was everything we were saying was like coming out. <laughs> oh, you know what we couldn't figure out to do how to do is how to transition from the intro to the summary. Okay, we had to redo that I think at least eight times. <laughs> then, then we like kept trying, and then we would be like, "Well, after this short thing, we'll return from a short other uh, <laughs> thing." And so, and so we actually were trying extremely hard not to laugh. See, that's funny because my perspective was that you all were like your usual charming, funny selves, but like 
too much so. Like, if mm-hmm. we're going to, like, do a podcast and, like, inject some, like, old-fashioned corny humor, that's what I'm here for. All right. So, listeners, more terrible I do like corny, corny humor. humor coming your way after this introduction slash summary. But we have an announcement first. Well, my announcement was simply that my sister... Um, who doesn't normally listen to our podcast. And who just recently ran the Boston Marathon. So yeah. shout out to badass. Hi, Hannah. Um, she listened to Benjamin, and um, she said, understandably, she didn't quite understand what was going on. If you haven't read Benjamin, it's hard to listen to that Absolutely. particular podcast. But that we sounded really cool. Yes. <laughs> She's a so. pretty cool person, so I feel good about myself. Yes, I feel I feel a little bit better. All right, so now the burden's on Emily <laughs> in this summary of Jen to continue to make us sound cool, and then we'll be back. In this book, Animacies, Biopolitics, Racial Mattering, and Queer Affect, Mel Chen reimagines the cultural conditions which designate boundaries to the concept of life and death, concepts of life and death. One of the central guiding questions is how life, that is, what we designate as occupying the condition of being alive, rather than reflecting a material reality, might be conditioned or constrained by what we imagine to not be sentient, to not have feelings, or to be otherwise immobile or wrong. Or in other words, how is what we come to think of as alive determined by what we deem dead? Even though we know that the ontological condition of a rock is not immobile, static, or even without some kind of agency, rocks change shape and composition over vast stretches of of time. They interact with other agents in the world, um, and they can even take life from an entity typically thought to be animate, crushing humans or animals in an avalanche, for example. We typically think of stone as the quintessential opposite of that which is animate. Chen wants to theorize what is made possible when we reimagine the rock to occupy a position in a hierarchy of animacy. What does it tell us about life if we think of the rock as not, in fact, inanimate? The two chapters we read for this discussion are Queer Animation and Following Mercurial Affect, chapters 2 and 6, respectively, uh, each of which deals with subsets of questions regarding what this concept of animacy reimagined makes possible. And then we, of course, as political theorists, think through what the consequences of this reimagining are for politics. Uh, Chapter two, Queer Animation, is a chapter about how language animates, de-animates, and reanimates. Chen asks, quote, if language helps to coerce certain figures into non-being or to demote on an animacy hierarchy, then what are the modes of revival, return, or rejoinder? The word queer becomes interesting to study on this point, given that it was once a historically objectifying term intended to dehumanize um, or move further down the animacy hierarchy, the thing that it designated, but has since been reclaimed in academic and political discourse. Chen asks what this reclamation means for animacy. What is animated when queer is reclaimed and the queer subject thus rehumanized? Um, This chapter is a sophisticated linguistic analysis of the term queer, and ultimately Chen argues that it has been both re- and de-animated. It reanimates continually in conjunction with queer of color, transnational, disability, and trans scholarship. It reveals important histories of dehumanization and enables reconceptions of agency, but it also de-animates in its staticness. If it needs to be modified by one of the aforementioned discourses, then by itself it is atemporal and not cognitively dynamic. 
Thus, the political question is who or what is given the power to speak back against queers' deanimating potential. We have to think about how language governs our understanding of what counts as a subject and what falls into the category of having life. Chapter 6, following mercurial affect, interrogates toxicity as a notion which complicates an understanding of subject-object relations. Chen argues that cultural expressions of toxicity, both metaphoric and literal, are composed of complex cultures of immunity thinking, where the appropriate or most valuable state of being alive is thought to be immune from and free of toxins. Thus, the toxic occupies a lower rung on the animacy hierarchy. However, it is not immediately clear, uh, first, that this kind of immune and toxic-free state is actually possible, given the way that molecules move in the world, and two, that a toxic existence is any less animate than a non-toxic one. In fact, for Chen, reconceiving toxicity as not just negation might enable new forms of affective intercorporealities or transcorporealities, or in other words, new forms of interrelations that might make possible new intimacies and a reimagining of independence as a fiction, which foregrounds power hierarchies. Reimagining toxicity could allow for the desiring of the canonically undesired, desiring disability, desiring queerness, desiring objects. It fails to exclusively privilege the rational, able-bodied, normative human subject, instead rewriting normativity outside the script of immunity altogether. In this discussion, we think through what potential these claims offer for scholarship and for politics. I hope you enjoy. So Rachel, I think you want to just start with kind of an, an opening question for us. Yeah, so this comes from chapter six, which I thought was um, both difficult and extremely interesting because it requires the reader to put together kind of different um, theories that aren't normally put together from um, animacy to affect to queer theory to critiques of the institutionalization of queer theory totally. um, in ways that I thought were, were super useful. Totes. Totes. As it were. As it were. <laughs> Totes as it were. So <laughs> under the section queering intimacy, um, and I loved how she connected intimacy to the the sociability of queerness, etc. Um, under queering intimacy, in that um, second paragraph, they say, thinking and feeling with toxicity invites us to revise once again the sociality that queer theory has in many ways made possible. As a relational notion, toxicity speaks productively to queer utopian imagining and helps us revisit the question of how and where sub subject-object dispositions should be attributed to the relational queer figure. But even further, queer theory is an apt home for the consideration of toxicity, for I believe the two, queerness and toxicity, have an affinity. They truck with negativity, marginality, and subject-object confusions. They have, arguably, an affective intensity. They challenge heteronormative understandings of intimacy. Both have gotten under the skin, yet queer theory's attachment to certain human bodies and other human objects elides from its view the queer socialities that certain others, non-human intimacies, portend. What are the exceptionalisms that can haunt such theorizing? So I was particularly struck by the first sentence um, mm -hmm. in trying to put together in my own words what it is that, um, that queerness and toxicity um, have in common in the ways in which they overlap. 
in terms of, as she says, negativity, marginality, and subject-object confusions. So I was trying to rephrase the first sentence to myself in a way that made sense to okay. test my own understanding, so I'm going to throw it out to you all. Queer theory has made possible rethinking a social sociality that makes possible blank. Can you say that one more time? <laughs> this is where on page 207. For oh, 207, those of you okay. I totally have those page numbers. Uh, queer theory has made possible... Let me, let me change that up to okay. try and um, vary my sentence structure. <laughs> I don't write like this, I swear. Sometimes I do. Queer theory has enabled a rethinking of so sociality that allows blank. So are we just focusing on queer theory here or on the relation between queer and toxicity? Queer and toxicity. Because I'm trying to I'm trying to clarify that relationship to myself in terms of what enables what and how it relates to sociality. That's interesting right, because we're reviving the sociality of queer theory when we think with toxicity. Maybe yes. that's it. Yes, exactly. I mean, in the way that Chen is interested in thinking in the second chapter about the way that queer both is animated in the way that it reanimates, but also deanimates certain others, mm -hmm. right? So that's part of the interest. I think that one of the things that the toxicity chapter does particularly well and kind of what socialities or relationalities might be opened up is thinking productively about queerness and disability mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the way that Chen's interested in doing and the whole book really, but, and, you know, and at least the couple of parts that we read in this chapter in particular, um, and, you know, refusing a purely negative valuation of queerness, toxicity, disability, or refusing to just use those as tropes to get at something else. Mm -hmm. But isn't there also a kind of ambivalence about how to use how to use them as something else other than tropes, right? It's like yes. we we want to sort of open up the possibility for, but we're restricted kind of linguistically by their animacy or animateness sure. as tropes, right? And they sort of designate something even when we try to, dis you know, detach them from what they sort of designate. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, which... I, which I was, I'm really curious about the work that ambivalence does here. Right. Well, even, when we get to the end and we talk about politics, I think we should yeah. come back to that. I mean, even in Chapter 2, they have sort of a... Ambiguous. There is the sort of also this um, underlying sense of uh, ambiguity. Um, they talk about polyvalence, for example, even in the use of queer. So um, they say, I do so by focusing not on the politics of a monolithic queer, but rather on the politics of polyvalence that are instituted in part by the bleeding of queer into diffuse parts of speech. So even in the way that queer is um, nominally used as like an object or, mm -hmm. a, or a, an identity and used as um, a descriptor used in the Oxford English Dictionary as a more of like an aberrant kind of adjective and then used um, more instrumentally in kind of an institutionalized way with some kind of political goal suggests sort of this... Um, 
ambivalence or ambiguity in its meaning. Yeah, I think that's doing a couple of things. And the fir first of all, I think that that's partly related to kind of the linguistic processes that Chen's tracing and like the specific work that queer is and is not doing. And, you know, here I'm thinking about the way that Chen talks about queers. And, you know, it's done all this animation institutionally or politically or conceptually or whatever. But at the same time, it also has this, you know, effort, this work of de-animating or, you know, recentering whiteness at the, at the center. Queer. Right? Yeah, at the center of queer, so that any other kinds of queers are always going to be at the periphery, which is one process that they're interested in in that chapter. So I think part of that ambivalence is just over the ambivalence that the work queer has done, mm -hmm. linguistically, but also in many other realms. But I think there's a broader kind of conceptual role that ambivalence is playing throughout mm. the work that's related to the concept of animacy itself, mm. where it seems to me that because Chen is interested in, you know, thinking about animacy, not, you know, live or not live or animate or inanimate, like trying to work against these binaries that are easily capturable, right, that, that they want to kind of think animacy outside in a somewhat ambivalent way or at least let animacy be ambivalent when historically linguistically it's been something that's been very binarizing and hierarchizing right so that it's by moving animacy into the realm of ambivalence or polyvalence or something that we're able to kind of follow animacy and all the different processes and ways it unfolds yeah, what I thought was so interesting too is though is that it's all it's always already Ding. <laughs> ambivalent. Yes. What's yes. It? And ambiguous. Animacy. Animacy, queerness, mm -hmm. toxicity, um, all of these things that are trying. So I what I this made me think of um, if we were trying to kind of map what the whole project was. I think there you might tend toward. Uh, a desire to say that they are weaving together these strands, right? Re weaving queer theory with disability, with science studies, with um, linguistics, with uh, a critical sort of eye, studies. yeah, critical animal studies with an eye toward political goals. But I think when you read it, what you actually get a sense of is that it's kind of like un or not unweaving, but like just showing that all of these things aren't. We weavable un or unweavable, yes. and that they're always ambiguously and ambivalently touching, mm -hmm. um, interacting, ingesting, breathing, mm -hmm. even rocks, right? There's like something about rocks that is alive, even though we think of them as yeah. a sort of quintessential inanimate object. Which is fascinating yeah. to think about them, that the way that the concepts and discourses like are themselves doing the kind of inter-objective inter relating and intoxifying and everything that Chen's trying to work through in what they're doing in the work themselves. So that's really, really cool, I think. Like, whether that's something that is intentional or not, or something that can even be intentional, like, maybe that's, I think that might be a really amazing thing that the work's mm -hmm. doing. Right, like, maybe if you try to parse out which parts of the project belong in queer theory or belong in animal studies or belong in disability, you're sort of highlighting the limitations of like disciplinary commitments and mm -hmm. the kind of arbitrary boxes we draw around mm -hmm. things even when we're trying to uh illuminate or elucidate right that we as sort of scholars or or the air quote scholars right <laughs> or uh <laughs> whatever we are thinkers right that um even when we are creating Literally. these new umbrellas under which to uh 
discover new, we re-constrain and we re-inanimate things mm -hmm. that are actually animate. Which yeah. has an interesting D&G sort of through line too, right? About D&D territorialization. Yeah, I wrote a note in chapter Much as Chen said, is interested in uh, D&D animation. Mm -hmm. I wrote a note in chapter 6 that just said Ask John, but I don't remember <laughs> what I wanted to ask you. It was on the page where it says Deleuze, though. Yeah, so. there's a D&D &D <laughs> section. The other thing that I think is interesting about this idea of ambiguity is is this whole relationship that Chen talks about between subject-object and its relation to the um, more ambiguous than we might think um, line between life and death. And so um, I'm wondering, and I was kind of wondering throughout, in what way does um, this idea of toxicity, especially as it relates to queerness and the way that one moves in the world um, in relationship to other objects, which are also subjects, in what way does that allow us to see um, a, a, a range of um, a continuum of life and death rather than life, line, death? I, I think one thing that's, I don't know if it helps or makes harder this question, but I get the sense that sometimes the life-death dichotomy that they are troubling isn't just the dichotomy of an animate Thing living and then dying, but it's also representative of how we think of inanimate, right? As like mm -hmm. not having life. So, so this life-death continuum, I think, is also, at least to me, it seems in this chapter to kind of be mapped on to the inanimate, animate mm -hmm. um, continuum. And mm -hmm. I think that in some ways, the the death reads to me as kind of like ironic or sarcastic, right? That it's mm -hmm. a, it's about living things dying or not dying or being let die, right? But it's also about things that we think of as in a state of death. But mm -hmm. if we if we rethink inanimacy, um, then we see that the line between mm -hmm. the inanimate object as alive or dead is, is not so clear. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's right. And I think that, I don't know, it's actually, so yeah. I saw Chen speak a couple of weeks ago um, at the Open Embodiments Conference. And so they walked through kind of three different ways they were using animacy, hmm. kind of looking <clears throat> back on the book. So, like, I brought my notes with me, and I can maybe try to reconstruct it. Well, I should say, like, the talk that Chen gave was amazing. Um, so they opened up by, like, talking about the time and corporeality of, like, the conference and the academic conference, hmm. and, like, invited people, this is, like, the opening to the talk, like, inviting people, first of all, to, like, reject virtuosity hmm. and, like, the academic conference, and then was, like, you know, do whatever you want with your body and, like, the posture of it, um, and, like, Chen encouraged people to, you know, lie down, to stand up, to, like, sit on the floor, to kind of do whatever it was they wanted, like, with their body, so just, like, a cool way to start. But anyway, so when they were talking about animacies, uh, Chen kind of walked through like the three ways that animacy was at work in the book. And the first was this kind of linguistic um, perspective, like animacy is this like quantum of sentience or personhood or something like that kind of in language itself, which Chen obviously says is like aligned with the Western colonial hierarchy of life, right? So able-bodied, maleness, whiteness is kind of the height of animacy. And Shen says that's kind of at work cross-linguistically to at least some mm. extent. So there's then that's where you get like the uh, animacy hierarchy or something like that, 
right? So that the sentence, the hikers that rocks crush, which Shannon has in the introduction, sounds weird to us because it gives the rocks animacy that like the linguistic structure doesn't want to give to it because of like mm-hmm. the ontologies behind it. So that was like the first way they were talking about animacy. The second is the stuff of liveness and deadness that's constrained by hierarchy Hmm. so that there's some ability for like reinvention through unbelonging that's at play at animacy and then the third was that there's something queer about animacy and so shen talked about it as like an inherent capacity for disturbance or interruption or something like that um from or coming from the out of orderness Right, so like the animacy of something like inanimate plastics, right, in, in environmental terms, which is based on a talk that had happened a couple of days before the conference. Can I ask who you guys think this is written for? Hmm. I I had a couple ideas. I was thinking one, if it's how we rethink, um, if it's about rethinking sociality, right, which I'm also not sure what they mean by sociality so maybe we could come back to that yeah um but if it is to some extent about rethinking sociality and then and there are political consequences for it then is it for like anyone who cares about like the environment for example or like people who are committed to a um a politics that takes like the trees and the you know the soil to be sort of political important valuable political actors or I thought that might be one possibility, right? If that's the project. Mm-hmm. And then the other possibility I thought was, um, it kind of read to me like a, almost like a critique of like scholarship mm-hmm. academia, like that there's yeah. something, um, uh, there's some, something like powerful and constraining and almost oppressive mm-hmm. in these, in the fact that you have to claim or, um, proclaim at the outset like but like i'm intervening in all of these different conversations right because yeah. the conversations are are set and even when they come from a place when they start from a place of maybe kind of liberatory emancipatory potential they um end up inscribing themselves as kind of like rigid modes of looking at the world right so to need at the outset to say i'm talking with all of these people in all of these different conversations is itself a kind of power-laden um, a conceptual sort of strategy mm-hmm. and that there's something kind of like not self-reflexive enough about what right. we do like that's as almost academics. a technology of mastery. Right. Like the kind of thing that Chen's not doing, but when you describe be, Right. Yeah. But when you become an expert on something, right. And you, this, this theoretical framework is your wheelhouse and you are the, you know, sort of authority figure on it that Chen maybe says, um, you know, but you haven't seen all of the ambivalent, ambiguous ways in which your, you know, line of, uh, or your, your thread of expertise, mm-hmm. like, bumps into and has a- actually affective relations with yes. everything else, with the air that it breathes, even though it's a, quote, inanimate object. I think that, yeah, so I think there's sort of three thoughts that came to my mind about who, as you were talking, who this is written for. My first thought was, you know, this is in response to um, specific queer theorists that um, prioritize the kind of 
nominal use of queer and also the whiteness of queer that excludes the kind that she says like Gloria Anzaldúa critiques and that queerness is inextricable from race like the queer mestiza and I thought that John what you're saying about the use of animacy in terms of uh, the linguistic and the kind of hierarchy that can be embedded in that linguistic it was maybe Chen's response to that but then my other thought was um, that it's written uh, specifically for nobody in the sense that to write for a specific audience would be to uh, reinscribe that particular hierarchy. Um, and I thought it was really interesting what you were saying, the idea of reinvention. Um, and um, I forget if it's when you were talking about the stuff of liveliness and deadness or um, queerness, the, its relation to queerness as disturbance. But um, this idea of reinvention, and she mentions Munoz at one time, if it's a way of kind of skirting um, a particular audience by um, mixing so, um, mm -hmm. you know, specifically. And then the third thing is the autobiographical component right. I thought was really significant. So it's obviously extremely personal and um, they use this sort of experience of walking in the world with um, heightened awareness of uh, the the um, objects and people and affects and toxins that people around them carry, right? And so I think that that is, Emily, your face. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I was just thinking about what we do with this if it turns out that it's written for nobody. <laughs> I mean, which I think you, I think that's right, but also really complicated that that's yeah. like, then, then us maybe as political theorists, when we get to the end and we want to say, okay, but what is this? affective queer political project and then we figure it out and yeah. then it turns out that's that's not a bunch well of... firstly it's not for us to figure out and secondly it's not it's not a, a thing yeah that's figurable yeah and i don't know but, and also I, mean, I don't necessarily mean for i think i said for nobody maybe a better way of phrasing it is it's not written for specific practitioners and academics within specific disciplines it's trying to upset them yeah that's what i was going to say like yeah. isn't written for nobody and written for everybody or maybe like everyone that you know that already has some you know background reading or right. whatever to the get at some thing. of the things if it's in the conversation or almost in the conversation already maybe that's kind of the same thing but I know the question of who's this written for is also really interesting to me because there's at least two different questions that are part of that question. One is like, or three, one is just the like, what, what discourses is this intervening in, which is not the most interesting questions for reasons that both of you have yeah. articulated. There's kind of like the questions of where does this have, what does this have the potential to interact with? Or does this, hmm. you know, or, or to maybe use some of the language that Chen's using, what does this have the potential to intoxify or intoxicate um or animate yeah or or animate right exactly but then there's the third question of like who's going to read this book mm -hmm. which is a different sadder answer right mm -hmm. than the one to that you know what is this going to animate or intoxify mm -hmm. or what could this animate or intoxify um you know, which perhaps is an illustration of some of these like animacy hierarchies mm -hmm. at work in that in the academy itself, which is why I kind of perked up when Emily suggested that it's a critique of academia itself or Rachel when you say it's in some ways kind of written for nobody, mm -hmm. which also means it's written for a wide Everybody. group of people. Yeah. Um, I think maybe I sort of projected my own <laughs> ambivalence about 
academia. Am I allowed to say that? I'm yeah. Yes. Get a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> into this book, but I don't know that that's sort of out of the realm of what's possible in reading it, you know? I think it actually relates to and brings up again the idea of what is sociality or sociability in this text. Um, even even the, the fact of writing a book presupposes an audience in a way, which is a, a form of uh, sociality. But I was curious the way in which uh, they talk about this the whole way through. So on the one hand, um, they mention affect theory a lot and the idea of what does it mean to walk around in the world? It's not simply about, first of all, the most obvious is, is it kind of undoes this idea of the individual, but much more broadly, the idea that the toxins that another body possesses can impact the way you move, the Im impact the way you're shaped in a similar way to which emotions throughout history stick to certain bodies rather than others, questions kind of this um, border between individuals, between subject and object, whatever you want to say. So um, I think that's one way that sociality is kind of upset or, or made ambiguous. But the other thing I was thinking about is um, psychic versus social um, and how that kind of comes into play along similar lines. I don't know. What do you guys think? I was kind of, I mean, the reason why I said I would like to come back to the sociality in here is because I wasn't, I, I thought they took so our, I don't know if careful pains to, or just it was part of the process, but a lot of um, time dedicated to sort of pointing out um, the linguistic sort of um, limits or animations of, or, um, uh, of, of particular terms, right. But sociality mm -hmm. just lives here without kind of mm -hmm. any of that, you know, I think, I mean, there's a little, they reference Merleau-Ponty and intercorporeality. They reference transcorporeality as the, as this, um, kind of like mode of relating. And there's a lot of stuff about relationality of things, of objects, of humans of animals of rocks but I but sociality just kind of like floats yeah. and so I I wasn't sure um you know if it just refers to all of these different things if it just refers yeah. to all these rational relational affective relations yeah <laughs> or if it's or or if there's like a reason why it's floating I'll maybe take an attempt at the reason why it's floating and it gets back to what you were saying earlier Emily about like the way that Chen's kind of both weaving these concepts together while saying that, like, presuming we can take any one of them as a strand that can be woven is impossible. Mm -hmm. And that's also being demonstrated in the text. That maybe, like, sociability is kind of floating through the text is something that's just there to interact, mm -hmm. right? As a concept that interacts with other concepts. Um, which, you know, isn't... I, I don't, that that's easy for that to become a cop-out. I don't mean it as a cop-out mm -hmm. on Jen's behalf or something like that. And like specifically, you know, I think about it as, you know, maybe we can talk about sociality or sociability. And I don't even know if we want to say that those are the same thing or not, or we have to like go back and look to see if they're used the same way. Yeah. But bracketing that, that if it's something like, given the extent to which Chen is working, I think really interestingly, and I do want to talk about this briefly later on, with affect, mm -hmm. that maybe sociability is something like openness to the capacity to affect and be affected, where the things like that can affect and be affected 
include uh, non-human animals, include so-called inanimate objects, and so on. And I wonder if that's something that's supposed to be, and it's like the openness or like the regularity or the iterability of it mm -hmm. that moves it from just like, and it's maybe like the distinction between like just interaction and sociability. Mm -hmm. But I also saw this idea of openness and sociability as both, as again, a ambiguous yes. and also ambivalent. Good point. So it, porousness on the one hand mean, leaves you open to wonder, to be very Ahmedian, but then at the same time, it also leads you to unwanted vulnerability. So right. when she talks about the and intoxication, yeah, exactly, exactly. like exactly. the environmental intoxication and, and, and that like, yeah, you're right. Okay, I want to walk back everything I'm, I just said, but you go, Rachel. I was just going to say, I think this idea of... How dare you. I know. There's two points that Chen makes that I think are really important. So one is um, when talking about the, uh, the, the fact that toxins are more than matter, the reason they're more than matter is because they lead to a particular vulnerability. And mm -hmm. vulnerability is, on the one hand, inherently interdependent and about a certain sociality, for bad and for good. Right. And at the same time, Chen also makes a point to kind of disavow the myth of independence, for example, yes. because the whole idea of dependence, as Chen says, implies or, or reinscribes the notion of independence as if, as if that's sort of the center periphery argument, going back to her diagram. So I actually think sociability in that sense is um, the capacity to be vulnerable. But the openness, for good, though, and for bad. But the openness to toxicity or the potential for intoxication doesn't just lead to vulnerability, right? It also leads for leads or opens up like deviant sexual desires, mm -hmm. uh, alternate between, forms of intimacy, right. kinship that right. doesn't just include humans, right? Yeah. Which, but, but it, which isn't necessarily a relationship of dependence. Yeah, it's a an articulation of a, a different understanding of the self or something, mm -hmm. right? Or like different knowledge of the self. I don't know if those are two different things, but to me, one seems to be kind of like an affective relationship and the other seems to be an epistemological sort of yeah. um, perspective that, that you come to know desires in a different way yeah. when you, when one is open up to the intoxication of, um, I don't know. But yeah, that I, I, the inanimacy. <laughs> but that's where I think futurity, am I saying that right? Yeah. Futurity comes into play for Chen. Because in that sense, how do we reimagine the positive potential of the porousness, of the vulnerability, of the desires that are allowed mm -hmm. to arise that don't harken back to some um, time some prior time of purity mm -hmm. or um, pre toxicity yeah. no you're right but that's where your previous point rachel is so important because that we have to be open not just to like the so-called good possibilities but right. to the to the ambivalence of it mm -hmm. all right in the sense that you know we're we're always already like open and vulnerable to toxins in the environment whether we want to be or not you know granted that like of course that's differentially allocated in a biopolitical way is chen's you know, very productively reimagining biopolitics mm -hmm. throughout the text as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and maybe it has something to do with like being, maybe sociability is the openness to the ambivalence or something like that. 
Hmm. But again, in some kind of, I want to make it like regular or iterative, but maybe that's like just my poly sci, poly theory background when mm. I'm wanting to like specify or systematize or re-territorialize or something. We haven't really talked about the queer chapter very much. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do Should it. Go back to that. I think that means you're supposed to ask Well, I, I was. I was just going to say, I, I was just wondering if there's also something about um, this, like, this, the problems or the, not problems, what's the word I'm looking for? These sort of, I mean, I think Chen's kind of ambivalent to, in, in a, like, critical and productive way to the project of re- claiming yeah. or yes. reanimating queer, right? Because there's kind of two elements to it. One, to say that it needs to be reanimated implies that it has been inanimate for, for some reason, right? And mm-hmm. two, to like the process of reclaiming um, does that thing that um, narrows and deploys, right, for a particular end and kind of uh, doesn't have the capacity to recognize that ambivalence right I'm like so into this ambivalence for some reason I don't know I think it's like most the most interesting part of this book for me but um maybe there's something kind of about sociality in that I think you mean but sociality so long as one is like paying attention to the de-animation that happens through the terms through the term queer like particularly the de-animation of uh, of disabled bodies, of mm-hmm. racialized bodies, and so on. Um, and I maybe want to turn to 71, where Chen is asking a question about queer. Um, so it's on 71. We have a mass of senses and a mass of affects. How to apprehend these denotative, connotative, and affective contradictions, short of throwing up our hands and saying everything's contested, or ignoring them altogether. And that's with reference to the term queer. Like, after Chen has walked us through um, some of the linguistic work, right? Yeah, and I actually, I mean, in some ways I I kept thinking about Foucault and the proliferation of sexual uh, discussions around sex um, versus the repressive hypothesis, because Mm -hmm. I thought that that was really interesting in the way that there's... um, on, on the one hand, a proliferation of the word queer, whether it's in adjectival form or um, used as a noun or used as a verb, which implies a certain temporality and leads can lead to what she calls a certain background noise, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting, like almost a de-animating or a neutering. I think she uses the word neutering somewhere. Um, and at the same time, um, I don't know. I mean, how does that de- does that restrict our ability to um or one's ability to to reclaim or does it assist it or should that be the project but i i I don't think reclaiming's the project and i actually don't think it's the foucault thing Hmm. um because chen's kind of pushing us like the foucault thing is maybe saying everything's contested or like foucault says in that one interview or whatever like everything it's my point that everything's dangerous Mm -hmm. right so i think chen's not happy if we just stop and say well um you know everything is whatever Right. But what's the whatever? Creative. Creative as in, like, generative, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this links to the toxicity thing, right? Like, okay. if we're trying to figure out how mm. to reanimate uh, toxicity such that what we authorize when we realize that 
um, we're all in this intertrans corporeal relationality sociality thing is that like we, um, reimagining the ambivalence so that we don't um, not all toxin not all toxicness is bad right um, that like there's something kind of generative and productive about like misusing or or um, using these words in different ways. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not saying this very well. Yeah. I, but I think that they talk about creativity as a kind of not, a, it's, it doesn't seem to me to be deliberate. Like creativity is not the person who says, let's reclaim queer and let's use it as a noun. Right. And this, yeah. this will be a positive political project yeah. that queers all over the world can rally behind. Right. Yeah. But where creativity happens is when there's slippage in how they use the word is used, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They talk I, about the relationship between two. Wait, I want to find this. Um, the relationship between two speakers. Oh yeah, right here. I don't know what the page is though. It's like a page after where you guys were before. Queers many senses or grammars of forgetting. Maybe one yeah, more. The that. lesson of both kinds of examples. Um, okay. I see right. Implication are. for the use of language. Right. So the she's talk or they are talking about um, this process. The the phrase "Who gives this woman away?" Right. And the kind of feminist mm -hmm. discomfort with that phrase, in that it casts the woman as the object to be given. Right. So the woman, the subjectness of woman, is kind of erased. Right. Uh, so they say the lesson of both kinds of examples is that though some degree of linguistic creativity is always mm -hmm. possible between two speakers, including, in my view, the very solitary second language and dialectical violations of standardized grammar, many basic grammatical conventions are difficult to violate while still being understood mm -hmm. precisely because they are so conventional, yeah. they are likely to be taken for granted. While for humanities scholars, sometimes the most interesting thing about language is that its constraints are not hermetic and can thus be failed by bad linguistic subjects. I wish here to demonstrate the creativity that works within and around such compelling constraints. Yeah, and I mean, I think, so that was page 72, and I think at the very end of that chapter, um, we're getting kind of some more examples of what that sort of generativity may look like. And I think very importantly, and I get the sense that maybe this is at work more explicitly in some of the chapters we didn't read, oh. but Shen wants to like turn to do something transnational, hmm. right? And thinking about what this creativity or generativity is, because, mm -hmm. you know, the, this chapter on right, queer animation ends, right, by thinking right. about how, and it's not quite queer, but like something that we might call queer um, comes, you know, as Chen says, one wonders, for example, this is page 83, one wonders, for example, at the possibility of the contribution of a borrowing of queer for China's linguistic territory of sexual identity terms, and then mm. talks about how, um, you know, queer doesn't necessarily have the same identitarian or de-animating logics in the way it gets retaken up in the Chinese context. Mm. Or Chen then follows up with, the, with another example of this, um, of this, you know, like Irish, English, and you know, earlier in either the introduction or earlier in the chapter, Chen's like, there's interesting to think about the concept of black Irish here. Mm -hmm. But like the quar, like Q-U-A-R-E, is another way to kind of think outside of this. And because the danger, I think, in saying 
we're, we're interested in generativity or we're interested in creativity is that there's always like the risk of de-animation coming out of it, like unless it's kind of a purposeful, you mean you know, when it sort becomes co-opted as identitarian? Yeah, so like Ident if, so I, that, right? yeah, identitarian. So like, again, still near <laughs> the end of this chap of chapter two, this is like the bottom of page 82 onto page 83, Chen writes, queer by its own metal both is and is not bound by such rules. It has mm -hmm. been both reanimated and deanimated. Mm -hmm. While it continually reanimates in new formations, thanks particularly to queer of color, transnational disability, and trans scholarship, has also achieved nominal fame as an identity, but has simultaneously coalesced, gotten sticky, inertial, lost its animation and its drive in the context of the United States. Its nominal terminus along certain semantic paths has led it to an atemporal staticization, a lack of, a lack of cognitive dynamism, an essential death, and a future imaginable only according to its modification by something else. At the same time, its essence is present by fiat and too often lives as the body of its most audible or legible or entitled asserters. And I want to add a few pages after that, Chen says, um, um, just when Chen's uh, summarizing the chapter, it was intended to provide a concrete figural example of the kinds of animacy that language both puts and fails to put into motion while retaining language's precise relevance for concerns of governmentality. So yeah. I think there's, again, two ambiguities there, both anim animacy and and, um, and De animating and, and de reanimating and deanimating, but also how that creative process can be both co-opted and resist co-optation at the same time. There is so much here. I could talk about this for hours. I know. <laughs> we, we still have time. The Do listeners have, I've, they, they want hours. They want four-hour hour podcasts, hours. I'm sure. Do you think that when Chen says animate theorists, my term for creative language users, that she's talking about people like us who like to engage in ab abbreviations? Like totes, like a briefs. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely like totes, deaths. What are we reanimating? That's the question. Yeah, language itself. Language itself. We're resisting the coercive <laughs> grammatical structure. I sort of when I read that that sentence, I was like, I think Chen's talking to me. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I'm an animate theorist, but I like that to be an animate theorist doesn't mean you're an academic theorist. It right. means you use language creatively. Right. Yeah. Right, what you know is transnational, which is about dialects, which is about poetry, which is about poetics. I'm right? coming up with such a sophisticated uh, response to all my friends who really hate when I breathe. In the, in the <laughs> back just, of my like, head, I'm just an it's all based on this whole book. <laughs> people don't get the irony. When I say people, I mean like specific friends of mine also don't get the irony <laughs> in abreves. Right, right. It's like, yeah, I get it. I'm still doing it. I'm a breathing. I wrote in a and I wrote in a text message to somebody the other day. Perf, meaning yeah, perfect. I, I use that all the time. And he wrote back, "quote perf end quote send," and I was like, Come "Yeah, on. I said perf. You perf. I don't say perf." I'm all pretty the time. sure that that person was redoing the anima animacy and animacy hierarchy. In oh. their text message to you, Rachel Brown. Oh, that friend was de-animating you Your as, a, as a knower 
of language. Yeah, they are committing epistemic injustice against wow. your animate theorizing. I'm a credible knower, guys. We better tell B to listen to this episode. <laughs> you said to him we use those phrases, and he's there. We'll right? tell him we referenced him. <laughs> According to B. Alvin's dissertation, that B. Alvin's dissertation. your friend in his text to you committed an act of epistemic injustice, <laughs> denying your capacity as a knower. So there are a couple other things that I think we want to maybe talk about in here in the text. Good translation. Um, <laughs> I do. I'm hoping that, that you all can abbreve some stuff as we continue to talk. Um, I think we want to talk about affect, and I think we want to talk about... Okay, I want to talk I about I think affect. we want to talk about affect. <laughs> I think I want to talk about affect. Abs. I think we Abs. want to talk about politics. I uh, want to talk about ingesting. And I want to hear... Emily, you had a, a skeptical question about animacy and objects. I did. Let's start there, and we'll talk there. about the other okay. stuff. Well, so it's skeptical in that it's it's a sympathetic skepticism. Yeah. I want to. Is all the I best want to sign is. on. I want to sign on, but I'm I'm a little wary. Okay, so I'm thinking particularly when Chen is talking about um the affects of animacy. So so they uh, are talking about the relationship with the sofa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when what what is lost when we hold tightly to that exceptionalism with, which says that couches are dead and we are live, right? And then later, uh, the first full paragraph or the second full paragraph on this page, it's um, it's the quote is: "It seems that animacy and its affects are mediated not by whether you are a couch, a piece of metal, a human child, or an animal, but by how holistically you are interpreted and how mm-hmm. dynamic you are perceived to be. Stones themselves move, change, degrade over time, but in ways that exceed human scales." Human patients get defined via their companion technologies as inanimate, even as they zip right by you in a manual wheelchair. I'm also not quite sure that's true. Um, And above and beyond these factors related to the power of interpretation and stereotype, there is the strict physicality of the elements that travel in, on, and through us and sometimes stay. If we ingest each other's skin cells as well as each other's skin creams, then animacy comes to appear as a category itself held in false containment insofar Mm -hmm. as it portends exteriorized control relationships rather than mutual imbrications, even at the most material levels. So what I was thinking is this ingesting. If if there's something about um, animacy that is about, or if there's something about what we take the inanimate to be that is animate, via this this particular mode of relationality, this example, right, this metaphor of ingesting, right, that isn't ingesting something that is an act that it, it is embodied in the typically thought of as animate, not in the typically thought of as inanimate, right? So if what makes um, hmm. cells or toxins animate is that we interact with them corporeal, intercorporeally via ingesting, isn't that mediated that that act of ingesting a mediation that lives in a lives mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in a typically thought of as animate entity, not in that inanimate entity in which we're engaging in that interaction with, right? So yes. then my question was, right, if we can ingest rocks because when rocks parts of rocks flake off and that um, we ingest parts of them, right? So they are they are animate in that moment or all the time, but that that is an illustration of their animacy. Do, do rocks ingest grass? <laughs> that, yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of a weird example, but that was just no, what came to mind. Question. You know, like, what is that? Is ingesting just a metaphor, or is it that one of, maybe one of the difficulties with this is that all of the metaphors we can come up with for explaining mm-hmm. the animacy of inanimacy are linked to Corporeal. typically thought of as yeah. animate 
corporeal that's, realities. That's where I was going to go with it, was that very last part. I was going to say that, like, it points to something that the three of us were discussing before we started. Of, like, Good job. The, yeah, that was great. <laughs> that um, made me tired. <laughs> and so put a pin in this, listeners. Later on, sometime in a couple of months, we're going to talk about Jane Bennett's uh, book. So we'll come back to this question. But I think, Emily, the last thing you were saying is exactly where I wanted to go, is that it points to the limits of the language that we have to talk about animacy and inanimacy, that even when we want to talk about the animacy of things that are understood to be inanimate, yeah. we do so through metaphors privileging animacy of what's traditionally understood to be living. Is there like, a way what, to not do that? I maybe that's one of the things the book's trying to do, right? Uh -huh. Like, that's one of the interventions. I know, Rachel, you want to jump in, but I have one more point <laughs> um, that I've now forgotten because I'm feeling bad because I keep cutting you off, Rachel. Um, that, go, the, go for it. I was just going to say, I mean, basically, I you hit on this idea of metaphor. I think it, you know, I want to go back to the beginning of Chapter 6 where Chen is talking about putting metaphor in biopolitics. Um, and I don't know what page this is. It's the pa paragraph before toxicity's reach towards the beginning of the pack, uh, chapter. And they say, here I move from exploring toxicity's contemporary and pervasiveness uh, as a notion to exploring its purported and experienced mechanisms in the human body. The shift concerns the role of metaphor in biopolitics, since the seemingly metaphorical production of cultural expressions of toxicity are not necessarily more concrete than the literal ones, which are themselves composed of complex cultures of immunity thinking. Reflecting on the ambiguous subject-object relations of toxicity, I use an animacy theory to ask how the flexible subjectness or objectness of an actant raises important questions about the contingencies of humanness and animatedness. Mm, Wait, so I think the, con the, the contingencies of humanness and animatedness is really important there because speaking of affect, if we think about the affect of animacy as we would uh, the affect of race, the affect of gender, the affect of sexuality, something that's contingently built upon over time through a history of circulating emotions and sensitivities and porousness. Like, how does that create animacy as a very thing itself, as a construct itself? And so... Um, okay, but so what if, though, what if we reimagined uh, this this project of breaking down the like false dichotomy between animacy and animacy, right? We can say, I think maybe that might be one kind of umbrella thing happening here. Sure. Right? I think that's the literal part. Right. But, but okay. So what I think this, which would this have metaphor, effects in our metaphors, right, right? But this metaphorical like limitation, right? Where the only language we have to sort of describe how inanimate things are actually animate, um, yeah. If if that's a metaphorical lim limitation based on our sort of inherent privileging of animacy as we typically understand it to be, why couldn't we think of it in the opposite way? Like, why couldn't we like de-animate things that we typically think of as animate, like yes. like the abstract rational liberal subject or something yep. like that? Or like, why couldn't we talk yeah. about like how I'm a couch or how like I'm a bed? <laughs> Those yeah. are incidental examples. Like, <laughs> or, you know, some, like, I don't but know. But isn't that falling into the same trap in some way? No. But I think it, it tips the scales <laughs> <Okay>. of privilege. <laughs> yes, but... It tips the scales. I think it is, but it, it tips, tips the scales of privilege, yeah. It, it gets to the part near the end of Chapter 6 when Chen says that, you know, we have to, like, attack 
rationality for the fact that it's like primary partner that's not the language that they use though something like that mm -hmm. is like the abstract individual that's bounded right so right. But, but there's still some like in, interplay between animacy and rationality mm -hmm. i think though mm -hmm. that you Maybe know, that's what... that this is like one of the really productive things that Chen does by starting in some ways with the linguistics is that uh -huh. right Chen can like flag for us that you know you're this going yeah you're going to realize as you continue to read this book that like the language the hierarchies that are literally like stuck to our language uh -huh. is like going to continue to structure even as we fight against us so yeah. then in chapter six when Chen like points to toxicity is kind of one uh, cat category is too static, but it's one category, right, that messes with subject and object, right? Then the matches, that's one example of how we, like, think outside of mm -hmm. those hierarchies that we inherit through the language. So once we, like, let the subject-object blur, is toxicity blurs the subject and the object by upsetting some of these traditional animacy hierarchies, Right, once we let the subject object and these animacy hierarchies blur, then it's not a problem for us to say, or it's less of a problem more accurately for us to say I'm the couch. rock ingests the grass. Mm -hmm. To go back to your because like we You can don't like the I'm a couch example? I don't know. I haven't <laughs> decided how I how I felt um, about that. Well, I was thinking it just occurred to me that maybe some version, but a much more sophisticated version of I'm a couch might be what's happening with the autism discussion. Yeah. Right. Because Chen's saying that what's um what's problematic about when when uh what's problematic about the way that autism uh, autism is currently theorized in relationship to people who have autism and their relationship to animals right what's problematic about it is it becomes they become pathologized as sort of animals themselves right. like less than human so but i think maybe what chen's saying is that that's this is we're reading the evidence incorrectly like the fact that um you know, people on the autism spectrum have these um, different sociality, so so social relationships with non-human animals means not that they're less than human, but that maybe, like, we're all a little autistic. Also, I think this... this or we all could be. Or not, not yeah. like, could be, but you know what I mean? That there's, like, something, something, like, that works the opposite way. Emily, what you just said also made me made me wonder what the relationship is of showing the contingency of both animacy and humanness um, and uh, you could say healthy and ill, for example, mm -hmm. also toxic, non-toxic um, or, or purity and um, post-toxicified, whatever you want to say. How that relates to the whole immunized. political, immunized, exactly, relates to the whole project of um, humanizing like this whole language of that's dehumanizing you know treating people as quote less than human mm -hmm. what's the relationship of this sort of political modality to that one right is it saying no objects are humans too or is it saying no humans animals and rocks are all things and does sociality, animacy things and does sociality then mean objects the interaction that exists not from the subject to the world or from the object to the world, but to that, because of the limitations of our language, seems ineffable me medium in between. What do you mean it's not effable? <laughs> <laughs> That's a creative use of language, Emily Crandall. Um, this is this Corny is joke. Maybe, that wasn't even corny. That, that was, was just great. witty. Um, this 
is maybe where like Chen we can like think about would be Chen. mad at us for doing this. No, no, no. <laughs> where where like Chen productively maybe intervenes in something like um, speculative realism or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of kind of adding animacy is an important thing that needs to be. Th- thought through and like discussions of flat ontology or speculative realism or something mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean it's a it's a hard question what about the, the linguistic um sort of context of animacy as a word right is it it's because it's kind of it has verbial properties right it it anim it gives right and what's the relationship of temporality to that? If nouns uh-huh. and adjectives are considered atemporal, as Chen says verbs in chapter have one, temporality, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what is that? Verbs temporalize, probably. And does that lead to? Right. And maybe this is a good place to shift to futurity. Mm-hmm. Does anim because um, animacy? Well, I guess okay. Let me take that back. Animacy is a noun, right? To animate or to reanimate or to deanimate implies a certain temporality if we're going to apply the logic of the queer discussion Mm -hmm. so what does that mean does that mean that animacy is more static and therefore once it's declared can't be lent to a project of future horizons or does that mean but it kind of it's like a noun but it's not really a noun like you want to like you make the, like you would make the argument that Chen makes about like that the noun queer is only a noun through reference to I forget if it's reference to the verb or to the adjective I think it's reference to the adjective, adjective yeah but maybe with animacy it's a noun only in relation like it's a verbal noun but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. know we I Do you mean I think a we're like wading into etymological or a gerund <laughs> right the, and to etymological and linguistic train that I have no I'm not idea comfortable about. there but I think it's interesting to sort of speculate about what the yes. what the um sort of consequences are for thinking about its um, its gr- grammatical kind yeah. of well and then the weird thing is that like then I go to the question of you know do I do I just had the thought of you know oh so maybe I, so actually my thought was oh animacy is a more animate noun than your average noun but like by saying that, am I reinscribing right. the animacy, inanimacy, uh, or you're committing hierarchy? A, you're committing an inan- inanimate injustice. Yes, against... or something like that <laughs> against less animate verb nouns or something. Guys, uh-huh. I just zoned out for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm speculating about things I probably I shouldn't speculate. Looking at about. the bookshelf, like which of these books should I steal to read? <laughs> <laughs> After Rachel already grabbed the Adorno earlier, very yeah. intelligently, critique of Heidegger. Should we talk about politics? That's. I mean, we don't have to. I want to say something about politics before you all say something smarter about politics. Go for okay. it. And that is that I <laughs> want to. I think that there's a really productive. Uh, productive or reductive? I th- generative, generative. A really generative, creative, if that's if I may say so. Uh, way to put together what Chen is doing and Hobbes, because of course I would say that. And they're like, I think that Hobbes is really interested in, hmm. um, is interested in animacy. Like he's interested in thinking about the body politic as something that that is subject to like uh, the subject to intoxications, the subject to disease. That he's, I looked, you know, I looked, did a quick like 
you know, control F through the full text of Leviathan. And like Hobbes is using concepts and sometimes the specific language of mm -hmm. animacy How can you control F to think about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can only watch how animate is the paper, paper book versus how animate is the PDF is the real question. Ooh, well, that depends. Um, oh, I thought you were is making a pen another... or is the mouse more? Oh, I animate. thought you were making another F joke. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> what do you mean controlled F? I say wild oh, F. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's your corny dad. That's a better right. joke. I do think that there should. I think that there's a there's a Hobbes Chen thing to do because I think that you know there's interesting directions to take that with regards to like what is Hobbes immunizing the body politics from and what does that suppose about how Hobbes is thinking about intoxication. I think it has something to do with Hobbes's like couple of lines in a couple of places about. Um, about North America is like this essentially inanimate hmm. landmass. Um, although obviously that's like more so in Locke than it is in Hobbes. I think there's stuff to say, you know, about Hobbes's ontology and his materialism. So I, I think that Hobbes and Chen have something to do with one another. I also was thinking think about. about the passions when you said Hobbes, and are the passions intoxicating? Hobbes's passions. Yeah, are Hobbes's passions intoxicating? Hobbes' well, they're passions always. Hobbes right. is always, and passions always intoxicate me. <laughs> Let's cut that out. No! <laughs> no, not your joke, my weird, like, cackling Too late. Response. Too late. <laughs> okay. But We're an hour and three minutes in, more after we add a summary, so they don't even listen to But I want to say that's true, yes, so it's all just us talking we to trust you. vacant, unless they're, like, doing a really long workout. But I don't say about... vacant, because the, we can't, like... Then we're reinscribing intimacy and intimacy binary. Okay, but the last thing I want to say um, before we move on <laughs> for the day <laughs> is just that passions are neither objects nor subjects, they're something else. So is sociality then kind of a network of passions? And if so, why are we sitting here and not going outside and jumping in? Okay, let's take that out. You know what I was thinking? <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> we're gonna take that out. <laughs> yes, I was are. thinking that. No, it's too late. I'm moving on. I was thinking about <laughs> magic a lot. Ah, interesting. Okay, because I was thinking about if, like, um, if what like liberal rationality does is kind of like deanimate mm -hmm. the non-rational human, then like there's probably something to say about colonialism and like folklore and magic because with like um sort of mysticism that attach it or that like um in imbues objects themselves with life right that there's like li right. objects with life in magic and in folk and in all this kind of stuff and that there's something like colonizing there's some probably some kind of like something to be said about the history of the like rational colonizing of magic or something. I don't know. I was just thinking about magic. No, totally. And there's a, I I actually like that's really, really productive because I mean one could talk like do like the Weber thing about disenchantment. One could like think about hmm. Jane Bennett's early book on like disenchantment and modernity. One could think about I don't know, think like the when we had James Padalioni on and interviewed him, which would have been like sometime in the fall, about like uh, Saint Martin de Porres and magic and you know and resistance to anti blackness and colonialism and stuff like that. I mean, there's all sorts of places to go with that. I think that's really fascinating to think about. I also thought about. I also the... just read Lev Grossman's series, The Magicians. There you go. Over mm -hmm. spring break, the whole thing. Yeah. So I'm like, I've been thinking about magic a lot. Yeah. I don't know. I also thought about the 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 passage in 
chapter six, where Chen is talking about drunkenness and how that relates to orientations from and away from kind of the given or the hegemony of... And how it relates to grad school. Language and how it relates to like, <laughs> I'm really hungry, guys. <laughs> Should we wrap this up? Sure. So uh, any parting words? Thank you, listener. For In conclusion, listening. politics. <laughs> In conclusion. Um, I don't know. I I don't know. I <laughs> I really I really like this. I the the chapter on toxicity is like just you know one of the more animating things I've ever read. Like yeah. it's just there's so much going on, and like I think one could read this at any like find other things that's happening that are happening in that chapter and probably the rest of the book which I know we go read all yeah. other things that soups have seen yeah <laughs> perfect I we'll be back yeah. with <laughs> yeah, advice questions <laughs>
you know, the, the central question or questions of the thing you're going to be working on. And, you know, you want to signal that, especially if there's any sort of theme whatsoever, That's what I was signal that say. you're interested in the theme. All right. Before I cut off more things. No, nope, you said you it. Say? I have nothing to say. Um, Why are you whining? Because <laughs> I've been trying to say something for five minutes. Oh. <laughs> Come on, we have to help Walls Armin out more. Um, you know, I mean, like, are, do you, how do you, what do you two feel about the, like, you know, name dropping in an abstract? What do you mean? Like, I'm, you know, using blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah's framework. I answer this other question, and in doing so, I take off on what blah, blah, blah said. I think if it's a central part of the uh, the question, also, depending on the conference, some people ask, what literature are you building off of? What's your methodology? So some are more specific than others. Some abstracts are quite much longer than others. So well, I think and also, also, like, in some theory conferences, you run... If that isn't a central part, if you're just, like, emphasizing that that's the framework you're borrowing, you might get put onto a panel that's not what really in line with what you're doing. So yeah. if you say, like, I'm borrowing this concept from, you know, continental philosophy, but your paper's not about continental philosophy, and then you get put on a panel that's, while well, continental philosophers, you're going to be not so, either not so comfortable, or maybe the people in the audience won't have as much, um, you know, useful feedback for you. I don't know. I think, I think a good way to think about, um, what you want to say in your abstract is to think about what kinds of people you would like in, in an ideal world to have on a panel with you. That's a good, that's really good advice. Or to make a panel. Yeah. You can always make a panel. The other thought I had is think about the stakes, right? Because, like, put yourself in the perspective of the conference organizer, and it's like... Especially if the conference has a theme. Yeah, especially if the conference has a theme, and especially if the conference is one where you know, like, that there's a relatively low acceptance rate or something. Right. Maybe order that section of the conference if it's a larger conference. You know, and think about, you know, I need to demonstrate the stakes to this paper, or, like, it's easy for the conference organizer to be like, okay, this may be interesting, but so what? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something to think about as well. Uh, I have Other... so many questions leading from this question. Like, yeah. what kind of conference is it? Does it have a theme? Is it really big? Is it really small? Yeah. Or is there a discussant on every panel? That's true. Well, that's the discussant thing's a little less relevant to are you how you pitch the abstract, right? Um, I don't know if they have to have a discussant who's familiar enough with the work to be able to give comments. How often do you need a discussant that's familiar enough the work to give good comments? Yeah, that's true. I guess I'm talking about like an ideal world. <laughs> Which academia clearly is not. All right, I'm one other about question. I'm talking the universe I live in inside my head. <laughs> <laughs> that we can dispatch with quickly. Uh, what's the question, Rachel? Um, the question, this is from Kathy from Winnipeg. And she. the question reads as, as follows. I have a podcast um, about political theory and critical theory more specifically slash broadly. And, um, we only received, uh, one question for our show this week in the question and answer period, uh, segment, what should we do? It's a great question, Kathy from Winnipeg. Uh, you could always make up questions. You could always ask the people, assuming you have, you know, two intelligent, smart, creative, people to do the podcast with you ask them what's going on in their lives because you want to butt in and make it part of the podcast those are my ideas you all any any other suggestions for um, a dear friend 
you could draw while one of your podcast members Rambles. answers a question <laughs> by himself. Question <laughs> um, all right. Great advice by all of us. We hope that Kathy from Winnipeg is uh, satiated in their quest for podcast glory uh, or something. Uh, thank you this all. This is awkward. <laughs> thank you all for joining us for the Always Ready podcast. Uh, Next time on the Always Ready Podcast, we're reading uh, Roberto Esposito's Bios, Biopolitics and Philosophy, which Chen actually takes up for a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, maybe so, we can talk about this book some more when we talk about that book. I am excited to do that. Um, until then, bye, Rachel. Bye, Emily. Bye, John and bye. Emily. And uh, bye, bye, audience. How do you... Wait, last question. How do you... Um, I wanted to say anthropomorphize, but that's not what I mean. How do you abbreviate bye? Bye. The audience. The. <laughs>